This evening, I'd like to consider what has been called the greatest story in the Bible. And the reason it's called that is because it's it, uh, emblematic. It is sort of um, taken from the greatest story ever told, which is the story of the gospel. What I refer to as the story of the prodigal son. It sort of encapsulates the whole um, history of, of man and the relationship to God with those who follow him and those who don't, and it ends with a big party at the end of history. So I'd like to uh, take just actually the perspective of three of the characters of the story found in Luke chapter 15. And um, there were two sons and the father, and I'm going to read those. Uh, they'll be on the slide here. Wonder if I could trouble you to stand, please, out of reverence for the word of God. A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a different country, a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now to verse 28. But he, that is now the older son, became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered and said to the father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given to me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. In third section and verses 31 and 32 of that same chapter, Son, you have always been with me, and all that, I, that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Take note of that last phrase. This brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and now is found. Thank you. You may be seated. There were two older men in a nursing home in the inner city. They were on a tall building. And they were both confined to bed. They couldn't get out of bed. And all they had out the window of their room was a brick wall. That's what they had for a view. And so I'll, I'll relate to them as the man by the window and the man by the, by the wall opposite the window. So they, um, the man by the window was able to scrunch himself up on his elbow and, and crane his neck over the sill of the window, press his head against the glass, and look down the alley at a park that was across the street adjacent to the building. So he began to describe to his roommate, the man by the wall, what he saw. In the springtime, he described the lovers who were walking hand in hand around the pond. And he described the kids who came and fed ducks in the pond. He described the flowering plants and the beauty of the color. In the fall, he was, in the summer, he was able to describe the games that the kids played and the picnics that families held in the park. In the fall, he described a lively colors of the leaves as the trees changed and the pickup football games. 
kids playing frisbee with their dogs. As the weather got colder, the man by the window described the snowfall on the trees and the heavy laden snow on the boughs. And he described the, the pond froze up and the kids began, brought ice skates down and they skated on the pond. And there was this Labrador puppy who were chasing the kids around on the pond and he would slip and fall. It was all very comical. For, for several years, these two men shared this room. And the man by the window would describe what he saw in the park. And it became a significant part of their conversation. The man by the wall enjoyed the conversation, but over time he began to get a little resentful. Why does he, why is he the only one who gets to look out that window? Why don't, why don't we switch beds? Why don't we, or switch positions in the room? I'd like to be able to look out that window. Why should he have all the fun? It isn't fair. It isn't equality. Share and share alike. So he began to build up some resentment toward his roommate. One morning, he heard coughing in the bed. The man beside the wall heard the other man cough. And the coughing became more urgent and compelling. And his hand reached for his call button to call a nurse to help. But then he began to think about this resentment that he had and how it wasn't fair and nobody seemed to matter. Nobody seemed to care. And his bitterness caused his hand to withdraw and he went to sleep. When dawn came by, the staff noticed that the man was dead and there was a flurry of activity in the room and they, somebody called the doctor and there was whispering conversations in the hallway. And eventually the remains were removed from the room and the man by the wall waited for what he considered to be a a reasonable time, a respectful period of time. And he asked Timothy, "Would would it be okay if we moved my bed over by the window? And the nurses said, sure, that'd be fine. And so by that afternoon, he was able to move over by the window and he sat there thinking to himself at last. He savored the moment. At last he was going to get his chance. And so he reached over on the bed rail and pulled himself up on his elbow. And he craned his neck over the sill of the window and pressed his head against the glass and looked down the alleyway only to find another brick wall. Another brick wall. It's a lot of lessons you could take from a story like that. Gratitude would be a good lesson. Perspective might be another. But I think that for this evening, at least, I would like to make the point that the most compelling point of that story is moral authority. There are certain things that you don't do, no matter how badly you consider yourself to have been abused. The man by the wall shared an affliction that I'm calling lost brother syndrome that was shared by both of the brothers in the story of the prodigal son. And I'll explain why. Number one in your notes, lost brother syndrome occurs when any person factors their own interests over the authority of God. Factors their own interests over the authority of God. 
The parables in Luke 15 um, are, there are three actually parables. And in verse 1, the chapter begins with Jesus began to have a conversation about or with, with the uh, Pharisees. And so the three parables, or three of them in sequence, and one of them is the parable of the lost coin, and the other is the parable of the lost sheep, and the third one is this parable of the prodigal son. And each of them describes something that was lost, and then that was found, and then at the end there was a celebration. The celebration, I think, is intended to reflect the marriage supper of the Lamb, the last celebration in history before history starts over again. So what is lost brother syndrome? And having determined what it is, what is its remedy? Well, those are two questions I'd like to share with you tonight. Timothy Keller is the founder of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, New York. It's a church of nearly 6,000 attendees and has over five services on a weekend and many daughter churches. Mr. Uh, Pastor Keller died uh, just a few months ago, and when he was eulogized, um, he was depicted as a person who had discovered a way to reach what are called post-Christian intellectuals. Post-Christian intellectuals. These are people who escape from the Midwest or from conservative communities and they go to live in the big city. And they want to get away from God. They want to get away from their parents' faith. And they want to get away from the upbringing that they had. And Keller was able to minister to those people quite effectively. He wrote a book called Prodigal God. When I first heard of the book, I thought I was a little offended. Prodigal God. Well, what, when you read the book, what he's talking about, he defines the word prodigal. And he said prodigal is, just means excessive or extraordinary. And so when the son went off and spent all this money excessively, then it was, that was what made him prodigal. It was extraordinary expense. It wasn't the fact that he was going after loose women. So Keller observes that both sons have characteristics that resemble many people in our country, in our society today. The first one, the young one, is a nonconformist. We might call him a hippie. He didn't like authority. He didn't like being told what to do. His philosophy was look out for number one. And so his actions depicted that philosophy. He took the money that was given to him by his father, and he went off and squandered it. He said in Luke 12, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so he, the father, divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Any parent of a prodigal can empathize with the situation of that father and the grief that it must have caused him to see his son disregard and abandon everything that he had been taught growing up. He abandoned not only the father's authority, but he abandoned the moral authority of God, not unlike that man by the wall. 
He followed a different God, which is the same God that he has always been, catering to our sin nature and with its materialism and lust. Paul in 2 Corinthians says, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Number two in your notes, the younger brother was lost because he substituted his own authority for the authority of the father was lost because he substituted his own authority for the authority of the father. The older brother was also lost. And interestingly, the older brother is really the subject of the story. We typically think of the prodigal son. We talk about the relationship of this prodigal with the father and how forgiving the father was. And that's a compelling part of the story. But Jesus' target was the Pharisees, as mentioned in verse 1. And the older son is the one who resembles the Pharisees. He was also lost, but for different reasons. He was a conformist. The older brother follows the rules, and he gets upset when other people don't. He gets upset when there is not equity or fairness. When the younger brother returned from the prodigal living, the father rejoiced. The father, in effect, restores the relationship with his son. He calls for the ring, he calls for the robe, he calls for celebration, the fatted calf, in effect, restoring him as his son. It's possible that the older son figured that that would mean when the father died that the estate would be divided yet again. And all that money they lost on his squandering would, be, would have been lost. Um, And that may have fed into his bitterness. We don't know that. But he says, uh, with um, in response to the father's pleading in verse 28, but he, that is the older son, was angry and not willing to go into the feast. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said, look, for so many years I've been serving you and have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. The older brother, like the man next to the wall, had a fine sense of justice, but little compassion. It wasn't fair. There should be equality, share and share alike. Number three, in your notes, the older brother's judgment and anger may have caused more damage to the faith in that community than the younger brother's prodigal living. Keller mentions in his book, Prodigal God, that many of the people that he reached in New York were refugees from, were kids who were refugees from churches in the Midwest and the West Coast who had gone to the city to escape their parents. And they had, these kids had been turned off by religious doublespeak and hypocrisy. They were turned off by the immersion in politics that seemed to affect the leaders of these churches and the desire to control people. The Pharisees were the targets of Jesus' parable, as I mentioned, because of their behavior resembled that of the older brother. There's a pattern in Scripture 
that Jesus follows in, in the Gospels, in his parables. In the story of the woman taken in adultery in Luke chapter 7, the adulterer would be a type of the prodigal son. And the Pharisees resemble the older son. In the woman at the well in John 4, it's the Samaritan woman, a racial outcast, who resembles the prodigal. And the disciples, perhaps, resemble with their tradition and their questions, perhaps resembling the older brothers. It was Zacchaeus in Luke 19, the tax collector and social outcast, who resembled the prodigal while he's comfortable and established um, citizens could have resembled the older brother. There are three chapters later in Luke 18, where there's a, a, a story, Jesus tells a story of a Pharisee and a tax collector who go to pray, which is probably one of the more compelling stories that illustrates this point. The tax collector is humble and beats his chest and, and um, prays for forgiveness from God. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Pharisee, on the other hand, says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. A narcissist is somebody who has an excessive admiration for himself. And what we see on the screen here is a narcissist prayer somebody who has a high opinion of himself. It used to be that um, narcissism was considered a mental disturbance. There's a name for it called narcissistic personality disorder. And you could get diagnosed with that condition by a psychiatrist and they would give you treatment. These days it appears to be more of a, of a, uh, persona- of a lifestyle preference And people choose narcissism because it fits their personality. It's a telltale feature of lost brother syndrome. Jesus said to the conforming religious leaders in Matthew 21, the tax collectors and the prostitutes enter the kingdom before you. Number four in your notes in our own day, there's a third lost brother that I would suggest who is a hybrid or a mix or a blend of the other two. This is a person who appreciates the reputation of being godly and ethical. He attends church regularly and is admired by the fellow attenders. He establishes relationship with significant people in the congregation. But he has a hedonistic streak. He indulges in fleshly impulses. He visits pornographic websites that he shouldn't see and, on, and <clears throat> makes contact with people that he shouldn't, uh, illicit contact that he, with people that he shouldn't. And it's all done anonymously because it's done under the shroud or the, the cloud of technology. The hybrid brother who is, um, suffers from this affliction has... Um, been represented by people in leadership in churches where they've destroyed their ministry, their reputation, and, the, and damaged the testimony of Jesus Christ. These are 
those of whom Jesus speaks in Matthew, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, where you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Lost brother syndrome was elegantly um, summarized by a poem written by a guy named William Ernest Henley, who wrote the poem Invictus. And the poem was featured in a movie by the same name, uh, featuring um, the life of um, Nelson Mandela, Invictus. And the um, poem, the last two lines of the poem read thusly, I am a master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Well, Lord, I appreciate the teaching. I appreciate the Bible, but it's kind of been outdated by science. I appreciate that it worked well for my parents, but I really have kind of outgrown it and don't need it anymore. I don't trust you or your people to treat people with fairness, with equality and social justice. The thinking of the man by the wall appears to be driving our culture. Henley died in 1903, the poet who wrote that, and I doubt very much that he continues to embrace that philosophy today. The prodigal is a type of God the Father, and he responds to the both sons in three ways that I think are useful. We can take examples from both the story of the prodigal and from the rest of Scripture. Number A, under four, um, he responds with exuberant provision. And it's illustrated in the parable in verse thir- verse 12. So he divided his wealth between them. Son comes up, says, I want my share. Uh, how would you respond as a father to a request like that? It's very generous of him to do that for sure. Um, Then when the son returns, he's repentant. He says, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. As a picture of God the Father in Christ, uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.19a, God reconciled the world to himself, was an example of exuberant grace, exuberant provision. For by grace you have been saved, through faith and that not of yourselves. God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's not by works of righteousness, which I have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. God made exuberant provision for the disciples of Jesus Christ to be saved. Number B, under four, exuberant grace. It's also illustrated by the parable. In the end, when he's trying to convince the older son to come into the party, into the celebration. He says, for the son of mine was dead and has come to life again, verse 24. And he tells the son later in verse 31, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. There's a picture of God the Father. God reconciled the world to himself. In 2 Corinthians 5.19b, not counting their trespasses against them. That's a measure of his grace. This is justification. 
the work of God that makes it possible for us to be saved is completely established in God, in his exuberant provision. There is nothing we can do to earn that grace. And finally, number C, under four, exuberant joy. It's also illustrated in the parable, in the father's reaction. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. Verse 32. Number six in your notes, the remedy for lost brother syndrome is to pursue relationship with the father. It's significant, as I mentioned earlier, that that the father refers to his son as being dead, as being lost, and is brought to life again. But the son, the older son, refuses to go into the celebration, and by that he becomes an example of the Pharisees. Because the prodigal, the younger son, did all the bad stuff, all the loose living But he repented, and he asked his father for forgiveness. His father accepted him, and they went into the celebration, the last event in history. The older son never made it. When you you get to the end of the story, um, he's still outside. Now, we we don't know um, if that might have changed had there been given more detail, but I think that was Jesus' point. Before the internet, people used to buy things door-to-door, and people made their living as door-to-door salesmen. There's a comical incident in Andy of Mayberry when Barney, the the, uh, deputy, quits because he gets mad, and he goes to sell vacuum cleaners with predictable results. There's a story of a door-to-door salesman who came to a house to sell vacuum cleaners, and the lady who answered the door was interested and so she said, well, I've got some things I've got to finish in the kitchen, but why don't you come in in the dining room table and have a seat? And uh, so the man did. He sat at the table and began to organize his materials. And a young boy came up and just stood in front of the salesman with his hands clasped and just stared at him. Now, the boy had been taught that it's never proper to talk to strangers. And so he just was silent. The salesman greeted him, acknowledged him, said hello. The boy remained silent. And he stood there, standing with his hands clasped, until it became awkward. And he asked the mother, is there a problem here? And the mother said, you're sitting in his chair. Number, what are we on here? sitting in his chair. Number seven is where we are. The remedy for lost brother syndrome is let Jesus have his chair. And there are three things, again, illustrated from the story that um, give example of how that can accomplish. Number A is in self-examination. When he came to his senses, uh, verse 17, he examined himself, he came to his senses and 2 Corinthians 11.28 says, Let a man examine himself. We are instructed in the scriptures to consider our behavior. Number B, in humility. I've sinned against heaven, he said, and in your sight 
I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Luke 15, 18, and 19. And finally, in, in victory through worship. But we have to celebrate and rejoice. Luke 15, 32. Hebrews uh, illustrates that same point. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2. The author and finisher of our faith. In Philippians 2, we're told every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is Lord. We all have a sin nature. We all have the desire to take over that chair. We all have the inclination to assume control. And it requires humility. and requires diligent self-examination and worship to be able to turn that control of our life over to our Lord and Savior. We shouldn't depart from the subject until we give a word to an exuberant mother, a prodigal mother, and her prodigal daughter. Maria and her daughter Christina live in a poor neighborhood in the outskirts of a Brazilian village. Maria's husband had died when Christina was an infant, and she never remarried. Times were tough, and when Christina was old enough to get a job to help, Christina, she often spoke of going to the city. She wanted to get out of the village and wanted to go to the excitement and the lights of the big city. Maria was terrified by the prospect because she knew that a young girl without a skill what would happen to them if they went to the big city. But one morning, she woke up, Maria woke up, and and Christina's bed was empty. She knew what had happened. And so Maria collected some clothes, put them in a bag, took all the money she had, and made her way to the bus depot. And on the way, she stopped at a drugstore and found one of those little booths where you can take pictures. And she spent nearly most of the money she had taking pictures of herself and cut them up and put them in her purse and then got onto the bus to go to Rio de Janeiro. So when she got there, she went to all the different cities, all the different places where she thought a prostitute might hang out because she knew her daughter was stubborn And she knew her daughter was hungry and she was not willing to give up on her dream and she would do she would be willing to do things that she might not otherwise consider. So Maria knew uh, Christina had no way of earning money money other than that. So a few weeks later, young Christina was descending the stairs in a hotel and she looked over at a mirror, and she saw a familiar face. It was her mother. And so she ran over and took the picture off the mirror and turned it over, and there was a message. The message was, in Portuguese, whatever you've done, whatever you have become, I forgive you. Please come home. And so she did. The problem of lost brother syndrome is anything that removes Christ and his 
and his position in his chair as sovereign in our life. It requires humility and self-examination and worship to return Christ to his position and to be freed from that affliction of lost brother syndrome. We thank you, Lord, tonight for your word. We thank you for this great story. We thank you for the um, example that you've given multiple times in your scriptures about how you desire humility and how you desire relationship. And you tell us, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man hears my voice, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. We're amazed, Lord, at that you continue to desire fellowship with your own creation. We pray that your word will um, impact our hearts and minds this evening and that uh, we will be different people for having been in this place. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.